Hey guys, this is episode 20, and that means it is Q&A time. I keep wanting to say, this is Q&A Tuesday, like Marie Forleo, but uh, I'm not her, and it's not Tuesday. So it's just Designers Getting Coffee Q&A session number two. We are going to dive in today and talk about setting expectations for clients, whether or not it's worth joining a professional organization, and how do you know when you are financially ready to move into an out of your home office space? We've got some great conversation going today. Come on in and join us in Designers Getting Coffee. Hey, I'm Kate Bendewald. And I'm Leslie Myrick. We're interior designers who've been meeting every Friday for coffee to discuss the ins and outs, ups and downs of running our design business and decided to hit the record button. We are designers getting coffee with each other and now you. While some might choose to guard the hard-earned secrets of their design success, we've chosen to support, encourage, and empower one another to be the most kick-ass business owners possible. Welcome to the Designers Getting Coffee podcast, real talk about running your design business with head and heart. Come join the conversation. This is episode 20, Q&A session number two. Today's episode is brought to you by the Interior Design Business Kickstart Kit. If you're thinking about starting a business or you've just launched, let me help you kickstart things to make major progress in a short time. The Interior Design Business Kickstart Kit is six months of intensive one-on-one coaching with me, plus all the business documents you'll need to crush it behind the scenes and launch your business like a boss. Book a complimentary call with me to learn more at lesliemyrick.com coaching. And now this is episode 20, Q&A session number two, ask us anything and we mean anything <laughs> maybe not anything maybe not, i'm exaggerating not anything <laughs> good morning kate how you doing hi friend i'm good i'm good i'm glad to be back happy friday happy friday indeed we've got our coffee we've got microphones and we've got awesome listener questions to tackle today I love asking our people questions because I want to know what's on their minds. And I think um, we've got some good ones today from some guys and gals. Um, and it's funny because we have a whole list of questions and we're only able to pick a handful for each episode that we do like this. But um, these are all questions we've asked ourselves. So I feel uh, like we've thought about it before and I'm looking forward to hearing your thoughts on the same topics. Yeah. And if you haven't been listening for a while, every 10 episodes, we do answer your questions. So if you have any, which come on, we all do as business owners, you can email us your questions at hello at designersgettingcoffee.com or you can DM us on Instagram and we're at designersgettingcoffee over there. All right. So this morning's first question is from a listener named Melissa. Do we know where Melissa's from? I think she's our Melissa, like your Melissa. Oh, nice. Well, she's <laughs> from Texas and she's awesome. And her question is, what is your advice for setting expectations for clients who've never worked with an interior designer? I love this question because it was a question I didn't know to ask until I experienced it. Yes, girl. I'm with you on that. So what do you do? What's your um, advice for, first of all, why is this question important? That seems obvious, but... Well, here's why I think it's important. If clients don't know what to expect, 
there's no way you're going to make them happy because their expectations are very unlikely to just magically line up with yours. And setting expectations from the start, making sure that everybody is clear on the process, the price, the outcome, that's going to ensure you have a much smoother project and a much happier client. If you're afraid to have the conversations of, you know, leading them through your process, if you don't even know what expectations there are, then you're not going to end up with clients that are really satisfied with you or your work in a nutshell. Yeah, no, you're right. And I think, um, those are all good. I think there's a big one that you left out, which is the timeline that projects take. Ooh, touche. Because, um, let's be honest, clients don't come with no expectations. They're always going to have some expectations. It's just a matter of, are they realistic or not? And, um, there's this thing called the HGTV effect, which you may or may not be familiar with as a designer, which, um, gives this perception that design projects are cheap, fast, and easy. Oh, isn't that cute? And, um, yeah. And so, I mean, maybe you're really good at doing one of those things, but trying to achieve all three, um, is never going to yield good results. And so I think setting clients' expectations early and often are really important. So what are, um, Leslie, one of the big things that you, find you have to clarify for clients that is maybe new information for them. I can't believe I forgot to mention timeline because I think that is one of the biggest. I've had clients who are, there's one in particular I'm thinking of. She is also an independent business owner. She has her own fitness business. She is savvy and smart and knows things about the world and had no idea how long it would take a design project. I mean, really, she she told me later when I came to her at our initial two-hour consultation and I told her it would be six weeks before I'd have the design ready to present to her. I mean, she played it cool, but in her mind, she could not fathom how it could possibly take that long. Like it kind of blew her face off. What so, are you doing in all exactly. that Exactly. <laughs> how does it possibly take you six weeks? And of course, you know, designers, you guys get this. What you do you mean a- you don't have a giant library with every material you can possibly <laughs> want to sample? Exactly. You need time to sketch out your ideas, do floor plans, make selections, get pricing on those selections, which that can take a hell of a long time, as we all know. And there are so many things that go into it. I would love to have a design done in a week for a client, but even just trying to get a contractor on site to measure and get their numbers back can take four weeks. So I think timeline is a big one for managing expectations because like you mentioned, Kate, the HDTV effect, Amazon Prime that we all love, people don't realize that our service often comes with a higher price and a longer timeline than a lot of the click and buy options that are available. And you mentioned the, you know, fast, cheap, and good trifecta. Yeah. So um, I know this is going live later, but as of the time we're recording this, it's just kind of come to the news this week that Home Polish has gone under and they're $20 million in debt because they tried to be fast, cheap, and good. And it's not sustainable. It's it's not. And so their expectations were not realistic. And I, as someone who has worked for Home Polish as a designer, I can sort of attest to the, the back end 
maybe not being so hot. And for us to be in business and be profitable, we cannot be all of those things. And we have to know what we are and we have to communicate that to our clients. And timeline is a big piece of that puzzle. You're absolutely right, Kate. Yeah. And then you turn around and present and then you're like, and it's going to take six to 12 weeks for your furniture to get made and deliver. (laughs) Oh boy. But you know, we don't usually lead with these numbers. Um, We certainly think it's important to um, be honest and open and upfront with your clients about um, lead times and what things actually take, Um, especially if you're doing high-end custom design. Um, But I think it's important to focus on the results and the results are going to be that number one, you're going to save them time, money, and mistakes. You're going to give them a space that is hopefully stands the test of time. It's beautiful. It's quality. uh, It reflects who they are and it's far better than anything they could have done on their own. That's the goal. And so while it's important to keep these um, realities at the, forefront of your client's mind. Um, it's important from a sales position to um, remind them of why they're willing to wait and, and why it's worth it. So yeah, timeline's a huge one. Um, you know, high quality furnishings that are going to last are going to be more expensive too, you know, yeah. and, it, and if they've got, if they're on a budget, making sure that um, you're um, gearing them towards the right service to fit that. Um, you know, also that SHIT happens. Like we call it womp womps in our business, I love and we that say phrase so much. Womp womps happen, and when they happen, we roll with them. So this is the fabric you fell in love with is on back order, out of stock, discontinued, whatever. Um, last week we got an email that all of our furniture that my client has been waiting for for. Uh, probably six weeks um, got shipped to another state. <gasps> no. <laughs> no. Oh yes. <laughs> oh yeah. And womp, um, womp. yeah, that was a big one. And like, there's nothing that anybody can do about it. Like, it's just stuff that happens, and you smack yourself in the forehead, and you're like, "What the? How? What? Why? How did this even happen?" <laughs> but then you just figure it out, and you move on, and. I'm a big believer that there's no such thing as emergencies in interior design. We've got to put these things into perspective, um, realize what a privilege it is, and to to approach it with gratitude. But um, I think just making them aware that, you know, stuff's going to happen. And when it does, we've got processes for figuring it out and uh, getting things cleared up. It's, we deal with this stuff all the time. Um, but I've had clients like, really freak out when something didn't go according to plan. And you're like, whoa, mama, cool it. Like, here's how this is going to go down. And then you set their expectations. You show them your confidence, show them that you totally understand that these things happen and that you've got a plan in place to figure it out. And the reason they hired you was so that they don't have to deal with this. You're their go-to person that's going to get it figured out. They can go about their work and life doing whatever it is their area of expertise is in and you've got it. You've got their back. And that's a huge way to demonstrate your value as well. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, like you said, womp womps. I love that, by the way. It's not an if they happen, it's a when. And to be able to let clients know that upfront that we don't know what will happen, 
something will. And we are equipped to handle it. We've got your back. It's under control. You know, it. I give clients the outline right at the beginning of a project together of our 10-step process. I want to say it's step nine is resolving deficiencies. It's not if they happen. It's there's always going to be, you know, paint is chipped here. A cabinet door is not is squeaking here. Things that, you know... Humans are doing this project. Humans make mistakes. Humans do the best they can. But there might be things that aren't quite up to snuff, and that's normal. And that doesn't mean anyone has dropped the ball or done a bad job. It just means that before the project wraps, or if you did drop the ball, taking well, and that's of it. fair. <laughs> True, it's a good opportunity to do that. But it means that there is time, literally spelled out in our process, right. to deal with those things to there is an entire step out of all 10 steps we do one of them is resolving deficiencies yeah there's no questioning like this is normal i love that well and that being said i think maybe i'm making an assumption here that everybody has their design process laid out and figured out and if you don't this is a really good time to sit down and think what is your process from start to finish what can clients expect the process to look like as they walk through it with you and what can they expect the outcome to be and consider documenting that in a welcome package or in a one-page document you give to clients at your first meeting. Have something written down. I think that helps a lot too um, in terms of setting expectations when clients have a takeaway, something tangible to remember it by. You can talk about all this with them till you're blue in the face and if their brain is too busy thinking about their new sofa that's coming, then expectations are not going to be met regardless of how diligently you explain things to them. So if you don't already know your steps and your numbers, document them for clients. Super important, super important to not take for granted what they might not know. Or the fact that perhaps they have worked with a designer and so they think they know exactly how it's going to go down and maybe your process is different. Um, But I think clients get a lot of value in my experience from knowing what the next step is and knowing what to anticipate. And so for me, my process is very clearly outlined, but I even set the timeline, lay that out in my proposal to them. So I give them my start date and when I will present and I outline that very early on. Um, but yeah, setting, putting your process in writing is super important, but I've had clients, actually it's the same one that I'm thinking of right now, whose furniture got delivered to another state. Um, <laughs> this just cracks me up. Um, that particular client who's darling, um, I felt like I had to say the same thing to her like five times before she was like, Oh, that's right. You told me. That. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh. So well, taking, don't take, forget it. Like if it's in your, if it's in your contract, that doesn't necessarily mean a, that they've read it or B that it like it, it got embedded into their skull. Preach it, sister. So like my welcome packet not only includes, I mean, it includes an outline of my process, but I also have a one sheet that highlights some of those big key takeaways from the the, uh, contract. So yes, they're my contract. They're reiterated on this one page that they get to keep. It's like, what are my working hours? How to communicate with me? Those kind of things. Um, and then we go over that together in person and I get head nodding, um, like, okay, yes, you heard this, right? <laughs> it's like, I don't mean, it's not to like make our clients 
come across as being like babies or infantile that, you know, they, they're smart people. They're just busy, you know, and we're throwing a lot of new information at them. And so it's just important to, to reiterate these things to them. But that's a great question, Melissa. I'm so glad you asked. Yeah. Kate, you have an awesome bullet point to summarize this that I want to say just, I'm giving you credit because you wrote it, but it's, it's a (laughs) basic summary of this answer. Set expectations early, remind the clients of them often. And make sure you have the process outlined and there's something for everyone to refer back to. Yeah. And and always remind them of the value that you're bringing because when you tell them it's going to take a long time and it's expensive, um, you know, there's going to be some people who are like, why why am I doing this? Yeah, I'm, like, <laughs> I'm just going to go on Wayfair and click and buy. So thanks, yeah. designer. Yeah. So make yeah. sure that you're um, marrying this information, uh, packaging it with, with the value that they'll get um, out of working with you. So... Bingo. Leslie, tell us what's our next question. I like this one. This is from Max. And his question for us is, are you members of professional organizations? Why or why not? I'm trying to decide if it's worth the time and money to join one. (gasps) Oh, professional organizations. Okay. So like ASID and IIDA and KBA, all those Bingo. Things where you can lead, things where you, I guess lead's a little bit different, it's a certification. Things where you can get letters after your name because you are involved and accredited with some sort of interior design related organization. I actually, I think I picked this question a while ago and wanted to tackle it because at the time, neither Kate, you nor I were members. And then Crazy Leslie here decided to jump on the ASID bandwagon and I joined that earlier this year. So why did you choose to join the ASID? That is an awesome question. So here's what happened with that. A couple years ago, living in Texas, there is a title law in Texas that prevents um, designers practicing as registered interior designers unless they are accredited with certain organizations. And so I was kind of dancing around using interior designer and trying interior stylist, interior whatever. And I just really wanted to be able to call myself an interior designer. I feel like there's a lot of value to it. And now let me be clear. I think the title law in Texas is only for the term registered Registered interior interior designer. Regardless, I got scared. So all that to say, (laughs) I did some research a couple years ago. I reached out to a number of interior designer friends, really well-respected people in the industry. And I asked their opinion on this question. And the response was a resounding no, we are not registered. No, we don't feel it's worth it. And I actually had one designer friend, oddly also named Max, who said to me that he, quote, proudly operates as an unlicensed interior designer, which cracked (laughs) me up because that's so his vibe and aesthetic. So I didn't, I didn't join. And when earlier this year, I was looking into making the move from Waco to Atlanta area, I don't know what triggered me to do it. I was kind of thinking about it. And then ASID emailed me with like an offer I couldn't refuse that made it a pretty good deal to get started because it's not cheap. And I decided to try it out just to see what would happen, just to see if it made a difference to have allied ASID after my name on my website and in my emails, if there was a credibility uptick for being a registered interior designer, for being a member of ASID. And I'm sure most of you know what that is, but if not, it's the American Society of Interior Designers. And so for about five months now, I have been an ASID member. And for about five months now, it's made no difference. (laughs) But well, to be fair, to be fair, you guys, you 
you just moved across the country. Well, and, and that's true. In, in getting settled into a new city. So, so I don't think you've given it enough time. No, I know. I guess in, in my mind, I was like, maybe, the, <laughs> maybe this is the secret sauce. Maybe this is the thing that will, oh, she's an ASID accredited designer. I will hire her. Well, I would say credibility is probably the number one reason people join yeah. organizations. That's why I did. I figured yeah. I would try it out and see if it did have an impact on perception or marketing or p- people interested in press or promoting me and my work. So I will say here is what I am finding to be good about ASID. And I'm only using them as a specific example because I am now a member. I'm not familiar. I've not been members of the other ones to know what it looks like on the inside, as it were. But they send a lot of communication. They have lots of opportunities for continuing education or CEUs, which are a requirement to be a member. You have to have a certain number of continuing education units every year, every two years. And there are meetups. There are events. There are lunches. I can see it being a very valuable way to dive deep into the industry, to connect with industry peers you may not get to meet otherwise. And there is a lot of opportunity for knowledge and information and real deep learning. That being said, if you're self-motivated and you're already working with a business coach, taking design courses, diving out there in the world, learning about new things, that might not be of as much value to you. But I think regardless of whether you're more self-directed or do it through an accreditation, an organization which requires it, I think ongoing learning is essential. And um, one of these organizations can be one way to do that and to continue to help you grow as a designer. Right. So the main reasons why one would join the organizations are professional networking, professional development or learning, and then credibility. Street and I think cred. It de- yeah. And I think it just depends on what motivates you. But Leslie's right. You know, joining organizations does cost money. It's an investment. And you want to make sure that you're joining an organization that's going to provide value in return. Yes. Um, and sometimes my experience has been, it kind of depends on where you live. Um, I am... I used to be a member of ASID and then I let my, um, actually I used to be the president of my ASID student, uh, chapter. I, <laughs> I did not that. know I was that. Such an, I was such a nerd. I loved it. It was really fun though. And I had, I had some great opportunities, but I let mine lapse. Um, and I actually would consider joining it again, or actually one that I'm more interested in joining is NKBA National Kitchen and Bath Association. Mm-hmm. And just because I do so many kitchens and baths these days, which I love. Um, but, and this might just be perception and not necessarily fact. So I'm just sharing from my experience, but the local chapter where I was um, previously, they didn't have a super strong chapter. So you have... To be clear, you have a, the national organization, then you have local chapters. And so usually each city has a, a chapter. And mine Each major city, major not a cities. lot of smaller ones yeah, do. I don't think, I think there's an ASID Waco yet. We could start no, it. But no, there's like three designers. <laughs> two, two of y'all just moved. Anyway, <laughs> um, yeah, so for me, it was, an, it was a chapter that didn't have a lot of um, activities that seemed valuable for me at the time. The... Um, the cl- the classes or workshops or continuing education units that they had just I don't, they they weren't they didn't feel right for me at the time and at the place and that could have, that could have changed by now but 
Um, I think just looking at what organizations are providing, looking at their calendar is really a big way to decide what kind of value you're going to get out of that group um, and seeing what do they have planned um, and also maybe getting involved with their leadership. Maybe they don't have a super strong um, calendar, but maybe that could be an opportunity for you to to jump in and volunteer. Um, but yeah, I would consider joining it again. And even though I know we don't have a strong, if at all, um, local organization, I know there's an Austin and a Dallas um, ASID organization, but I would be interested in what continuing education they offer. For me, that's the most important. I'm not interested in the letters after my name. I mean, I have my um, uh, lead accreditation, um, but I don't even put that anywhere. Why <laughs> not? I don't, I mean, I don't know. Should I? Yes, <laughs> you should. That's huge. That is time and work, and that is your brain. I think absolutely that should be on your website and on your um, email signature. And if for nothing else, the people that know what lead is, that'll be an extra like thumbs up for Kate. For the people that don't, maybe this is silly, but I don't think it ever looks bad to have a couple letters after your name that show that you take what you do seriously and you're committed to it. My husband has a PhD and I'm very jealous that he gets to sign his things like Dr. Nathan Myrick, PhD. And I'm like, Leslie Myrick, Diploma of Interior Design. <laughs> and now I'm like, Allied ASID, everybody. What, what? <laughs> so you can clearly see where our, um, what's important to us is different. <laughs> uh. You know, it's so true. And I actually didn't join for the professional development. I'm literally trying to find CEU courses right now to take to meet my requirements and I'm not finding any that I think are going to be worth it. Like, and I don't mean that I'm better than what, the, what they're offering, but I do so much learning on my own through business coaching, through courses, through classes, through seminars, through podcasts, that there's really not much that they are offering that I have to pay for. I'm finding some good free ones that vendors are putting on that yeah. I can learn about paints and color and materials. And that's the kind right. of stuff I want to do. Totally. That, and that's the stuff I would really get in into is you know I want like stone like I want teach me all about stone I love stone um and I my favorite classes in college were the materials courses and having to bring in professionals to make make us little mini experts on various subject matters so yeah I think it could be worth it um I I will reconsider joining one of those organizations and look into them because it's been a while. Yeah. Great, great question. So basically the, the, the nutshell answer for Max, are we members? I am, Kate's not. And is it worth the time and money? It depends on the outcome you're going for. That's, that's vague and unhelpful. Hopefully go back and listen to the yeah. last 20 minutes and we'll give you the real answer. But <laughs> well, I think it's what, yeah, what are you, what are you in it for? And is there a strong organization in your area? Yes. And if not, are you going to get enough value out of what the national organization offers? So. Right. Is it a magic bullet to have four letters after your name? No. Do most clients even know what the heck it is? No. <laughs> I've never had a client come to me and say, you know, I was going to hire you, but I didn't see you with ASID, so I'm going to move on to the next guy. Most clients ultimately care about who you are, what you're about, and what you can do for them. And... It's not typically a deal breaker if you are not accredited 
However, don't work beyond your capability and do something that requires accreditation <laughs> that you are not capable of. That's a no-brainer. That's true. Okay. Very nice. Thanks, Leslie. Thanks, Max. Thanks, Kate. Thanks, Max. Thanks, Thanks Max. Walk, walk on. Okay, question okay. three. This one, Kate, I have no experience with, and I want you to answer because I'm really curious to know what happened with you. But question three comes from Jessica, and she asks, how do you know when you feel financially comfortable enough to move out of your home and into a commercial space? Are there financial percentages to meet? Ooh, meaning... When do you know it's time to take the leap from a home office to an outside workspace? I like working Uh, from home. I'm not going anywhere. Yeah, great question. Um, Well, so I'm just going to talk from the assumption that you already have determined this is the best thing for you and your business. Um, I did sign a lease for a commercial space in Denver. I was so excited about it. Um, And then right at the last minute, I got cold feet only because... I knew that I wanted to move into a retail direction at some point. I wasn't ready for it at that moment in time. And the place that I had chosen was a loft and it was a second floor loft in this really awesome like old factory building with other creative professionals. And oh my gosh, it was so beautiful. It had like city views. It had these gorgeous, like super tall ceilings, wood floors, those black paint, gridded windows. Oh, it was lovely. And I based that decision on the fact that I had enough employees. Um, It just, I I didn't want my employees to feel like they were working in an inferior job because we were working out of my home. (laughs) I, you know, my home at the time didn't have a whole lot of space. I wanted to reclaim that space for myself and for our our kids and our family and for guests. And, um, so that was my reasoning for doing it. And I, the financial decision that I had made was I needed to have three months worth of savings that could cover the cost. So, you know, if we were to have a slow season, I didn't want to have to move us out. I mean, it was going to be an investment again to furnish this place and then to get our everything, our dress changed on everything. And there was just a lot involved. And so I knew that I wanted to have enough savings that if anything changed, I wouldn't have to lose our space. And so three months was for me what felt good. Um, I wouldn't do anything less than that. You may feel more comfortable with more. Um, but yeah, um, th- three months was sort of my number <laughs> that I had. Um, yeah. And ultimately I pulled out so that I could find something that was on a first floor so that when I was ready to move toward the retail side of things, um, I would have the ability to do that because it was on a, on a street, street level. And then about a month later, we found that we were moving. So maybe it was a blessing in disguise that I pulled, um, pulled out of that deal because I would have, it would have made the decision to move much harder, perhaps even impossible to uproot after furnishing that space. So the world works in mysterious ways, but that's how that ended up uh, going down for me. That's so interesting. So I'm curious to, to pedal back a little bit. You mentioned like, let's assume you already have made the decision to go. How did you know it was time? Like what made you feel like you were ready to launch into an outside office instead of working from home. You mentioned kind of the perception thing about a home office. Well, it started out with 
like we were just getting too crowded. I had three people working for me and we were working on my basement home office. Um, yeah, that'll do it. Which, you know, it wasn't huge, but it also wasn't tiny, but it was, it was a basement, you know? And like <laughs> every morning I had to make sure like our kitchen was cleaned up and all the dishes were put in the dishwasher, which is a good thing to do anyway. But, um, there was just really no separation. And I, I mostly wanted it for my employees to feel like they had a legitimate office to, to work from. I knew that I wanted to attract, um, some full-time people. Um, and I just, I wanted a more attractive office space for my employees first. Then, you know, it became, well, this, this is really good too, to host client meetings and have contractors come and do work meetings. Um, we could have had a bigger library. Um, there was a space, we, we were short on space, um, for holding our material samples and, we always met our clients at their homes to present, but occasionally, you know, if we had a situation where there was a, one of our clients at at that moment in time, we gutted their house down to the studs. We moved the stairs. It was this, it was an all new HVAC. It was a huge project and um, they were staying in this tiny little apartment. And so there was just not really a good place for us to meet. And I was like, God, I would just love to have this like simple, didn't need to be huge, but really nice place where I could invite clients and, and have, have meetings. I also want to, you know me, I like to throw a good party. Um, you sure do. You're <laughs> we, the queen. We, every year I would throw a party for my clients, all of our trades people. I was really close with our trades. Uh, we had a great electrician and painter and contractor and just all of those guys. I loved working with them and I wanted a way to celebrate them. And so we should do it at a bar or restaurant, but, um, it would have been fun to have it there and like have a DJ and drinks and that sort of thing. But, um, so those were, those were my reasons, um, for why, but I definitely, so now I'm working from home again, but I have an office that's a separate building, separate structure that's physically separate from the house itself. And so that feels, um, good enough for where I am now. And I enjoy it. I enjoy, um, don't get me wrong. Like I get up every day, I put on shoes, I put on makeup, brush my teeth, (laughs) go to work. And, but I, I can throw a load of laundry and in the middle of the day, if I need to, I can be here when the exterminator comes to open the door and let him in. And I don't have to worry about scheduling all of those things. Um, when my kids are sick, I need to stay home from school. Like I have a desk right there and I can just work and while they sleep and watch cartoons. So I love having a home office for that reason. And I've thought about it. You know, we've thought about, well, if we moved, would we find a house that had the same amenity or would I work outside of the home? And I think we would cross that bridge when we got there, but I, I personally love having a home office, um, at this stage of my life. I was going to mention the stage thing. Cause I feel the same way. You know, we have, our kids are very similar in age, Mine are five and two. Yours are six and three now? Yes. Wow. So we're both in a similar parenting place where we want time and space and a place to work, but there's also a need for accessibility. Um, I feel your your struggle about your Denver home reminds me of my place in Texas because, you know, there was enough space for one or two people to work there with me. But if I ever had a client or contractor come, they literally had to walk through my kitchen or living room to get to my office, which was fully open to the house. 
And that to me just kind of felt a little weird. Like for my staff to be there, it was okay. But I always felt very strange just being like, and here's my breakfast bowl in the sink contractor guy. Come sit in my (laughs) office now. So my house that I'm currently in, in Georgia, when you walk in the front door, my office is on the left with doors and my dining room is on the right. And it is kind of, I just realized this. I'm like, that could kind of be like my boardroom. Like it sort of looks like I wouldn't feel bad about doing a client presentation in there if we needed the space. Yeah. But my office is just inside the front doors. I'm in a home office set up right now where I would have no problem having a client come here. Yeah. You know, they wouldn't be walking through my ish. They yeah. would come right into my office and it works great. But we I can do absolutely- that too here. We, I definitely have space here to have client meetings. Um, we'll take them back to the office to do presentations. Um, but just last week we had a pretty big presentation and we needed more space. So we used our dining room and that was nice. That worked out yeah. for us. I think a big part of deciding whether to go to an office too has to do with how comfortable are you having people in your home? And is your home presentable at a level that you would want your clients to see? And maybe that sounds superficial, but I always felt like my home in Waco, like my home was not at the level or size or doneness of my clients' homes. It always felt a little weird to let people in there. I I didn't often have clients come over. It had to be someone like really special that I would let them come see my office. Here, I feel a bit different. And I think we're more at an age and a stage and a place where I would be happy to have clients see my home and they would, it wouldn't be like, oh, that's my designer lives there. Like the all Ikea furniture, (laughs) like what's going on. So yeah, I think when my kids are older, we have talked about either building something similar to what you have, Kate, like an external building on the property. We've talked about converting the large attic above our garage into a separate workspace apartment with its own entrance. That's kind of my long-term vision because I don't want to have more than maybe two or three people working here with me. I don't know. I'm kind of an introvert. Like, leave me alone. Just let me get my stuff done. <laughs> I'm good with a virtual team and I'll meet. You can be anywhere and we'll we'll talk on Zoom. But I do, I think there's a big appeal to um, working in an outside space, especially if you do have a good number of staff, if you have a lot of needs to have that be a presentation space, a client facing space and things like that. So, I mean, kudos to you if you are feeling that it's time to take that leap into doing it. I think that's amazing. And I think your advice is great about having three solid months of money in your pocket as a bit of a buffer and also considering how much it's going to cost to furnish the space what other you know are there deposits you have to pay are there renovation or remodeling costs that you have to um, take into consideration and kind of weighing all those factors on how busy are you how full is your pipeline how is your marketing going and seeing if it's going to be worth it with where you are um i will just add that one of the considerations that i had was um, renting because it was it was a big space for us. Um, but I was considering renting desk space to someone who was in our industry. So whether it was a draftsman or an architect or a landscape designer or a contractor, but um, sort of subleasing that or sharing that rent with somebody in my industry. So that could be an alternative. There's a lot of co-working spaces that are really affordable and small, and you can use their um, boardrooms. Um, is shared spaces. So there, there are options out there. Um, but yeah, I just, to your point is 
the financial question. And I would say, give yourself three months. I think that's great. So there you go, guys. Q&A episode two. I was going to throw in a fourth question, but I literally have contractors knocking on my office window <laughs> waiting to ask me questions. <laughs> so I think we're going to wrap this puppy we'll up wrap now. Wrap it up today. That's and cool. save the next questions for episode 30. I can't believe it's not that far away. And like we said at the top, if you have questions, we would love to answer them for you right here. You can email us at hello at designersgettingcoffee.com or DM us on Instagram and follow us along while you're there at Designers Getting Coffee. We'd love to hear from you. We love to help you answer questions. And if there's anything you've been struggling with, just want, you know, a peer's input on a design decision, a business decision, we would love to be those people to help guide you in the right direction. Awesome. Thanks, Max, Jessica, and Melissa for your questions. We hope this helped and we can't wait to do our next Q&A episode. Yeah. And remember, guys, if you haven't already, go to designersgettingcoffee.com to download your free mini business toolkit. You're going to get an install day box checklist, a handy reference guide with typical project hours to help you estimate, a list of our favorite design and business tools, and more. Grab yours at designersgettingcoffee.com. And I think that's it for us today. We'll see you next Friday. Bye, guys. Bye. Hey designer, thanks for sharing part of your day with us. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes so we can continue to connect with badass design bosses like you. We love to hear your feedback. For more designers getting coffee and to join the conversation, head over to designersgettingcoffee.com for show notes, free downloads, and more. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at designersgettingcoffee.